welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney, nationwide across the community radio network. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program tonight... It's not going to directly affect the, the price of petrol at the petrol pump. Um, what it, it has a different effect. It'll actually affect the cost of travel and that it's likely to go up. What? Air travel is going to go up? We have oil prices diving deep into negative value territory, which you would think would be of great benefit to consumers. But it's a sign of market dysfunction or imbalance partially caused by the Russian-Saudi Arabian oil price war and partially by the economic depression path that COVID-19 is leading us upon. Also on the program... If you want to spend about 20000 Australian dollars per person per year on a UBI, which is kind of in the middle of the range of numbers that's been floated in the discussions that I've read, then you're talking about slightly more than doubling our present welfare and social security bill. In many ways, most governments are trying to put a floor on the loss of income people are enduring because of the various lockdowns the economies of the world are enacting. One of the ways is to have a universal basic income. We look at how it may be achieved. All this and more coming up on On The Money. But first, many businesses have been preoccupied with the sudden cessation of economic activity, which has caused momentous decisions for them over staff, plant, equipment, investment and, of course, debt. But owners and managers would also need to think about restarting their businesses. Are the old models still going to work? How different will it be? I asked Richard Spencer, Chief Customer Experience Officer at Business Australia, what the recent stimulus measures are likely to do for business and where do we go from here? It's an unprecedented level of support that local, um, state and federal governments have provided to businesses. And I think that's created uh, in all sizes of organisations, I think, uh, the ability for for business owners and managers to kind of take a step back and, and start to think about both a survive and a thrive strategy. Um, and in, in effect, um, how do I make sure that my organization is still here when we come out of this COVID-19 crisis? But simultaneously, how do we thrive in a post-COVID-19 world? Um, because I think um, uh, experiences of other disasters around the world are clearly nothing quite as, um, as widespread as this particular pandemic. But, but crises like the GFC or the bushfires, floods, um, uh, California bushfires, 9-11, seem to indicate that, that the peak of bankruptcies from those kind of crises tends to be 12 to 24 months after the end of that particular crisis. So there's a, there's a longer-term survival piece that is about how do I make my business thrive in, in, a, in a new world, in a new environment. And I think that's where clever organizations and clever businesses are now starting to think, uh, okay, how do, how do I thrive in, in a world that I'm not quite sure how that will look in a few months' time? I mean, is there any idea of a time scale here? This is the part of the problem for business is, is when, when, when should you think about opening the doors? When should you think about starting up the machines again? Do you find that this is a big problem? I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an unknown, if I'm completely honest. Is the, this, this, the, the twin difficulties of both health and an economic crisis simultaneously are, are a little bit unknown 
um, in all of our lifetimes and certainly unknown within the context of a digital trading environment. I mean, I think part of the, the benefit for a number of organizations is that they've been able to pivot quite successfully to working from home and, and, and shifting from an office-based environment to a working-from-home environment. Um, we, we were able to quite quickly make a, a range of different resources available on Business Australia to, to help organizations make that pivot, but also to help the people who work for those organizations pivot to a work-from-home environment, which is obviously very different, um, very different environment to working in an office surrounded by your colleagues. Um, in terms of the when, I think the when is, uh, I mean, I think the government are doing um, uh, the, the right thing by ensuring that we, you know, we don't um, un- unlock, um, uh, unlock these restrictions too soon. Um, but that also means that, that, that when will things return to normal is actually quite a difficult question to answer. But I think the real, the, what businesses need to focus on is that that return to normal will not look like a pre-COVID-19 environment. Things, trading environments will definitively be different. And again, that kind of how do I thrive within that environment? Um, how do I how do I pivot? How do I innovate? How do I repurpose? How do I look at my capabilities? Are more important now than they probably ever have been. So, uh, where should you start when you're planning for this? What What are the things that you really need to think about first? That's a great question because I think probably the first thing that organisations need to do is to accept that business will be different, um, and I think that's not always easy to do because we you know, we, we quite like. Um, a status quo environment as, as, as humans and as business people. But I think there is a, if, if organizations can accept that the, the trading model, the business model, basically has been put through the shredder and, and they need to then try and work out what has come out of that, that that's a great starting position to say, okay, how do, I, how do I look at my organization? How do I look at my supply chain? Um, how do I look at the demand curve that, that my business used to have? What do I look at? What, where, where are my core competencies in that? What do I think might change? What are the opportunities to pivot? Well, how can I transform? Um, all of those questions are questions you can ask yourself and your organisation. If you accept that, the world will look very different as we come out of COVID-19. So it, instead of worrying about how deep is the hole that we're going to end up in, maybe say, look, here's a blank page. Where do I want to be in two years? Yeah, I think that's a, that, absolutely, I think that's a great opportunity. And, and the experience that, that, that organizations have that have come successfully out of a crisis is they tend to work back from an end state. So, you know, what would I like, where, where do I want my business to be in two years is a great question to ask yourself. And then working back from that um, uh, to, to, to start to think about how you can, um, how can you innovate, how can you look at, you know, what are the core competencies in your organization that set you apart from your competitors or, or set you apart in the mind of your customers, your clients, and how can you capitalise on those? But also, how can you begin to to get ready for a a, a, a post COVID relaxation of, of the restrictions we're in now? None of us really had a chance um, to prepare for the restrictions because they came in so quickly, and uh, I don't think anybody saw quite saw that this crisis being as, as as deep and as sustained as it as it's proving to be. But we do have the opportunity to now start thinking about how we plan to come out, um, and you know I think that, that that's a real opportunity for most organisations. And people are going to be different as well. When your employees are coming back, if you're in a, a, a small, medium-sized uh, SME-type business, what what are you going to have to watch out for? Because it's not going to be the same, is it? People have been working at home. Maybe they've had all sorts of personal problems. Maybe they've had people in the family that have been sick. Maybe they're not going to be the same either. I think that's I think that's very true. And we've seen a number of... Um uh, questions come through our, our various advice lines of Business Australia, and, and and lots more traffic to the content we have around mental uh, managing mental health 
and managing well-being and, and within the context of working from home and managing the the complexity of, of um, family life and loved ones being intermingled with your with your working environment. But I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I don't think business will be the same. I don't think society will be exactly the same. And the employment relationship will probably be very different as well. So, yes, I think it's important to, as a business owner, as a business manager, to take a look at all of the key, um, key functional requirements of your organisation and start to plan... Um, um, sort of find the best way to, to bring that back to recover post-COVID-19. And I like from a management point of view, are people going to perhaps think less about the time that you clock in and you clock off and more about the quality of work? Because people have been working remotely under their own supervision, haven't they? They have indeed. And I think it's one of the interesting things personally for me is to see um, how quickly we have trans- been able to transition into a, into a remote working environment, I think you know you, you see in the in the number of downloads and the share price of an organisation like Zoom that we, we're getting much more comfortable to that those those remote conversations. I, I think um, the the best leaders have always focused on outputs rather than inputs. So you know making sure that the outcomes are being achieved rather than the amount of time spent at a desk. And I don't think in Australia we're 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 the kind of society where we we, we absolutely insist on seeing people at, at desks nine, ten, twelve hours a day. I think we'd focus more on outcomes, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it's easier to make that transition and easier probably to continue that transition post-crisis when you've you've been able to see your staff step up to it during the crisis period. And I suppose, you know, where do you go for help? Well, uh, you've got some tools on Business Australia, just on your website that it's easy enough to... To access, um, what are some of the uh, what are some of the things you've got there, and what are some of the other places where people should go to to help them get a, a start back in into business? Yeah, Business Australia was effectively launched to help organisations think about how they might improve their margins, how they could become a better employer, but also how they could they could grow if they wanted to grow. We we had to pivot and transform as as quickly as many of other organisations have done, and and we changed quite quickly the content and advice and support we were providing to, to help organisations survive through the COVID-19 crisis. So we, we have um, a stimulus advice line, we have employer and employee toolkits, we have impacted employee toolkits. Um, uh, all of this is available for, for free on Business Australia and we've also made that available in a range of different languages as well. Um, but we're also now starting to think about, as, as you have asked, how do, we, how do we start to deliver advice and support and content for organisations who are now confident that they will survive the crisis and are thinking about how they can thrive out of the back of that. Um, so we're be- beginning to bring in templates and documentation to help people think about, you know, what, what within the context of my organisation or my supply chain or, 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 or my customer base, what are, what are the things that I can identify that would, that would allow me to position well for the future and, and maybe think about how I transform my organisation into a different trading environment. Richard Spencer, Chief Customer Experience Officer at Business Australia, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers, and you're listening to On The Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network. On The Money, for everything financial. On The Money gives me the edge when I have to sort out my finances. I love listening to On The Money. And I hope you do too. 
Well, oil prices in America have plummeted to an all-time low, reaching negative $38 on Tuesday and I think a bit worse on Wednesday in this unprecedented drop-off. Situation comes after months of a price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia and is exacerbated by other global factors, not the least of which, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. In recent news, though, Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor has used the historic low prices to announce a new deal with the United States, focused on building up Australia's oil reserves. The deal will initially store the reserves in America before shifting them to local storage as the capacity opens up. To find out more, Ryan Stanton spoke with Dr Stuart Jackson, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sydney, about the reasons behind this dramatic drop in prices. Okay, what we have is a series or confluence of events. Um, one is uh, or had been an ongoing, if you like, uh, price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the other is COVID-19 and the effects, actually, of reduced travel. <clears throat> um, this is actually quite important to remember. The price had been driven down in the production war between two of the major producers. You then have COVID-19, which then restricted air travel. Now, you have a large amount of aviation fuel now in storage. And, of course, in the United States... It's not going anywhere. They're not flying anywhere. Um, So you have this storage capacity that's been taken up. Now, if you don't want it, what do you do with it? Well, you can't just throw it away. You can't just burn it. Um, You've got to put it somewhere because you still need to make petrol for all the petrol vehicles and diesel for all the diesel vehicles, the land transport vehicles that you're using. So what you're now seeing is a, a slight scramble to see how to use this aviation fuel Um, if you like, just to be able to free this up. You said that this situation was a result of already depressed prices in part, but this is the first time that these prices have shifted into the negative. Can you explain a bit more about what this shift might mean? Well, logically, it actually means that someone has to pay you um, to take uh, the oil away. Um, The reality is, of course, that when you look at, you know, so you have the West Texas crude price, um, which is the American spot price. You have the um, the uh, Brent crude price, which is the, the price paid for oil, certainly out of the, the North Sea. That's still sitting at $26 odd um, a barrel, so in positive. And um, what it means is that certain sections of the market are not buying oil and some sections are. You also have, of course, um, large amounts of fuel floating around the world at any one time on all the large carriers. And that creates a different problem around pricing into the future. So the futures market is now suffering. So the impact is that it forces uh, countries, companies to now consider how else to utilise these various materials. Can you elaborate on how this current global oil market situation is affecting Australia? The problem with aviation fuel is that it is has a high sulphur content. Australia has changed its rules around what you can put into fuel oil in terms of sulphur content. Um, so the consequence is that they say, no, you can't put a lot of this into um, uh, bunker fuel or you can't put it into what ship diesel would use. You actually have to be quite careful because we now have a set of rules around what you can um, pump out into the atmosphere. So we have, in that sense, created a problem in how do we, again, use this stuff. 
So it is actually, as I say, having a direct consequence. Um, so we, what we had was a system set up to do one set of actions, and we have a situation that is really demanding things operate in a different way because the rules and regulations we've set up um, don't accommodate this new situation. Will this new situation affect petrol prices for people filling up their tanks? The interesting part about that is that it may do if all the costs are passed through. Um, it may not. Um, one way of, of dealing with this is to slow production. Um, this would push the price of petrol up and not allow it to continue to fall. It would solve the storage capacity problems and what do you do with um, all the you know, other products that you've created that you're not using. Um, but yes, it would actually push the price of petrol up. Um, the likelihood is that we will not see this passed all the way through. Um, we will see perhaps in the short term some drops in price. Um, personally, I would be expecting uh, eventually the price to go up again depending on where we go into the future. Shifting back from car fuel, much of what you've discussed is about the way air fuel has been a driving factor in this crisis. <clears throat> is the recent collapse of Virgin going to affect the situation? It's not going to directly affect the, the price of petrol at the petrol pump. It has a different effect. It'll actually affect the cost of travel and that it's likely to go up. All the analysts have been saying when you only have a monopoly flyer, in this instance it would be Qantas, um, assuming it survives as well, uh, and Virgin doesn't, um, it's free to put the price up, which it will you know, logically do. It will be flying relatively full planes because there'll be less planes flying. It will be able to charge increased rates. So I would actually expect air travel to become more expensive. On top of that, I think people have also weaned themselves off a bit. The idea of travelling all the time, of being able to take flights anywhere in the world or at any time, <clears throat> that's quite possibly a good thing from a planetary perspective. You know, if you're thinking about climate change, of course, people will then go, well, what else do I do? How do I have a holiday? You know, we'll actually have to reconsider and perhaps reconceptualising how we live our particular forms of life. This whole situation with oil prices being negative seems unsustainable and you've touched on some of the possible solutions to it. What can we expect to happen after this dip passes? What will happen after? If I had a crystal ball, I could tell you. There is a, a desire expressed, and we've seen this in some polls, uh, and this is overseas polls, um, certainly in the UK, people saying they would prefer to remain um, not in a COVID-19 lockdown situation, but not have to go At back the to same the pace time, of life. There's a large number of people beforehand. in business who would like us to go right back to where we were before us. But this has also given us a way forward just at the right moment when we were starting to think about climate change, bushfires, how do we do it? We've had a break. We've had a breather. We could potentially start talking about, well, how can we reconstruct, you know, if not our whole lives, bits of our lives? How can we restruct, restructure how we do transport and how do we do work? I'm not sure we'll necessarily do that, but it has been interesting to have this little pause for the moment. Yes, Dr. Stuart Jackson, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Sydney there, and he's just racing out in the street to get his cone with extra sprinkles from Mr. Whippy. You may have heard a bit of Mr. Whippy in the background, uh, but he was speaking there with Ryan Stanton. I'm Roderick Chambers, and this is On The Money. On The 
Money. Ride the gravy train with us. Yeah, well, the gravy train is having a few problems at the moment. We're trying to get it restarted for you, but it's certainly unusual times. And governments around the world are looking at ways of keeping consumer demand up, keeping consumers spending and keeping the money moving around to avoid the depression that may come if we don't. One concept has been that there should be a universal basic income to put a definite floor on the income that people should have, that they should have in which to live. The question's always been how to make the numbers work, and Shane Anderson is here to investigate how it may work. Over the past year, universal income has become a buzzword for radical change. It's rethinking the way we connect work to money and making sure no one gets left behind as we enter the age of automation. Troy Henderson, a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, says it's so appealing because it's both utopian and pragmatic. It's recognisable within the world we currently inhabit and it falls short of something like you know, fully automated luxury communism or a total transformation of existing social relations, but it does have some greater scope for advancing human freedom or human emancipation. As trials roll out across Europe, I'm going to be exploring what it would take for a universal basic income to actually be introduced in Australia. This segment, I'll be looking at the economic reality. Can we afford this? It was the Swiss who brought the referendum, and it was shot down, I think, largely on the back of people thinking it was just really, really expensive. And it would be expensive here, too. So that's the thing. It's just really, 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 really expensive. That was Gigi Foster, an economist at the University of New South Wales. She argues the biggest challenge to a universal basic income in Australia is that no matter how much political momentum it picks up, it will never stop being expensive. If you want to spend about 20000 Australian dollars per person per year on a UBI, which is kind of in the middle of the range of numbers that's been floated in the discussions that I've read, then you're talking about slightly more than doubling our present welfare and social security bill. We spend about 10% of our uh, GDP every year on welfare and social security, about maybe $170 billion or so. So you'd have to slightly more than double that. So you're saying roughly 20% of the GDP would go towards paying mm-hmm. how many Australians? 20 million? Well, yeah. But, it's, but if you're talking just about adults, then it's somewhere around 16 or 17 million, I think. Where would the money come from? Well, that's the big question. That's the million-dollar question, (laughs) the $20,000 question. One solution includes eliminating the tax-free threshold, but that wouldn't cover the total cost. Another is to reduce the amount of the payment. But the problem there is the smaller you make the income, the less of an impact it actually has on people's lives. Sydney University's Troy Henderson has spent the past few years working out whether Australia can afford a basic income scheme. He says the $20,000 per year model is not the only way universal basic income could be implemented. We could give all 21-year-olds, for example, $50,000 a year, right? And as a one-off capital grant, that'd cost about $15 billion a year. It's a lot of money, but it's a lot less than $200 billion or $300 billion. It would have totally different effects as well. It, it doesn't give you the income security. It gives you the one-off amount of money to start your own business, maybe buy an apartment or put it all on black on the roulette table. While these models present a less radical vision of the future, Troy thinks that the most practical basic income wouldn't be fully universal. Instead, Australia could see a scheme which gives unconditional payments to those with lower incomes. 
I also want to look at another model, which is more of a tax credit system. So a negative income tax model, where if your income falls below a particular threshold, you'll get a tax credit from the government, which is not as radical. There are some implementation challenges with that model. But in terms of its fiscal cost, it's a hell of a lot less because you're not paying Jamie Packer and Gina Reinhart $17,000 and then taxing it straight back off them. So the most pragmatic approach involves removing the universal element. And while it would cost less not to give Australia's richest any more play money, it's touched on one possible solution to fund the basic income. In the 2015-16 financial year, Oxfam reported that Australia lost approximately $6 billion in tax from multinationals. Could we afford to pay everyone if our highest earners and multinationals paid more tax? Here's Gigi again. Before Reagan's tax cuts, there were like 70% marginal tax rates in the US. Yeah, we could go to that. I don't think that, that Gina Reinhardt would be very happy. But just to say that Gina Reinhardt doesn't want to pay it, then we shouldn't bother. But surely the idea of the universality of equality, you would want to not just let Gina Reinhardt ride off into the sunset on a Jeep. No, I totally agree, but I agree with 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 half of what you're saying. I think we should really chase the the rich people up to get more taxes to then do other things. But you know, if you're thinking that we need some sort of political imperative to generate the will to tax or to try to tax rich people more, I don't think the UBI is the ticket because the politicians hate it. Perhaps a question of whether we can afford the universal basic income isn't just economic, but also a matter of political will. Shane Anderson there ending that story. And that's about it for us here on On The Money This Week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. Thanks to Ryan Stanton and Shane Anderson. On the Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2SER for the Community Radio Network and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can hear all of our shows and stories at 2SER.com slash on the money. You can subscribe to our podcasts. We've got new episodes coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter, look for at on the money 2SER and find us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. You stay safe and thanks for your company.